0: And welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm the director of ECFR. And this week we will talk about the future of globalization in an era of geopolitical competition and what that means for Europe and its foreign policies. And today's episode is a very special episode. It's a historic episode because we're doing the first ever live recording of The World in 30 Minutes up in the mountains at the European Forum in Altbach. So, a very warm welcome to our live audience. So it's incredibly exciting to be here in Altbach, one of the most beautiful places in the world, but also one of the most interesting places. And I have an all-star cast here with me today to help me make sense of what's going on in the world. First up, we have Carolina Idstaatler, e. who is the Minister for, EU, for the EU and the Constitution at the Austrian Chancellery. warm welcome to you, Carolina. Thank you. Secondly, we have Carl uh, Bildt, who is coming back to the podcast, co-chair of ECFR, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Sweden. Warm well, welcome to you, Carl. Thanks. And finally, we have Thomas Wieser, who is American-Austrian economist, who uh, was Director General, I think, of, of the um, uh, Ministry for Economic Affairs, but was also uh, for a long time. Uh, the president of the Euro Working Group and is now uh, got a number of academic affiliations as well as being at Bruegel. very warm welcome to you, Thomas. Hi there, thanks. Great. So we have a, a big topic here today. Much of the debates and the discussions here in Altbach have been uh, influenced by the war in Ukraine, um, which uh, has changed so much of what people uh think about their politics, about their security, but also uh, about the, the economy. And what we want to do today is to look at how geopolitics, politics and economics are coming together in new ways to, to reshape the fabric of, uh, of, of globalization and what that means for Europe. And going to go first to, to Carl Bill to give us a sort of big picture sense on, on how he, uh, on, well, Carl, tell us how you think these things are coming together. Do you think that globalization is going to fundamentally be changed by the geopolitical events that we're living through at the moment?
1: I wouldn't say fundamentally, but uh, clearly it's evolving due to quite a number of different factors. One is, of course, geopolitical tension, where it's uh, primarily two things that affect it. One is Russia is leaving the global economy. That's what's going to happen, with some exceptions, but that's going to happen. Um, second is, of course, China. Uh, The question of uh, when, well, if, but when the Chinese economy is going to be the biggest economy in the world. Uh, And that's going to have a continued impact on the global economy, needless to say. And add to that some other factors that are fundamental. We live in the transition from the industrial to the digital age that reshapes a lot of how our economies and societies operate. And we are in the transition from the fossil fuel age to renewables. And these are massive changes, massive changes. Uh, We sort of take the entire global economic system and take it off energy that has been dependent upon for 200 years, the entire era of industrial revolution, industrial age has been fossil fuel driven, and we must in a couple of decades take it in completely different directions. That sort of changes the geoeconomics and the geopolitics of our supply side so does the digital and so does of course the uh, political tension that being said it all illustrates how dependent we are on the world and uh, that's going to continue to be the case and i would say even more be the case we we are we europeans are today i think six percent of the global population in a couple of decades we're going to be four uh, percent we are still roughly somewhat less than 20 percent of global trade We have 35% of our economy being trade. So we are a small place in the world, but highly dependent upon the rest of the world. Those dependencies will change rather fundamentally in a number of different ways as the global economy changes due to these different factors.
0: So, Carolina, maybe I can ask you particularly about this question of dependency. We've been talking a lot about um, our dependency on, on Russian gas and for austria that's not a small dependency i think 80 percent of your gas consumption comes from russia to what extent do you think that the challenges that are coming out of that are not uh, um, not just a sort of practical problem of of finding a shortfall in how we keep our heating on and, and allow our industries to work but also Uh, a part of a a sort of more philosophical challenge to Europe because the whole idea behind the European Union is that you can turn former enemies into friends by creating interdependence between them. And now we're we're finding that interdependence is something that makes us vulnerable as well as being something which can change and and build a a kind of basis for common understanding. And I think one of the the big disappointments that many people in Europe are feeling is that the the idea of Wandel durch Handel doesn't seem to be working as far as our relations with Russia is concerned?
2: Well, first of all, Mark, I would say the 24th of February uh, definitely marks a turning point in European history. That's the first thing. And I was already, or I has been listening to so many podcasts in the meantime. It's the first time for me to be into a podcast myself, I, I would like to say at that point. Um, and there are many of the opinion that um, globalization is maybe turning in regionalization. And uh, obviously, I'm not agreeing on that. But I think that globalization is changing in times like that. And this has, of course, to do um, with the dependencies we are very aware of in the meantime, and this came already through uh, during the COVID pandemic. We saw that we are so dependent on India, on China, regarding med- medicines, uh, regarding uh, several things we, we needed during the pandemic, like masks and other things which are produced not no longer in Europe, but somewhere else in the world. And so I think there will be a fragmentation of the globalization, and um, we also should really look that we get protection sets and keep them in Europe, that we are not, um, not dependent on everything. We can't reduce the dependency you were speaking of regarding gas from one day to another. But what is our duty now is to diversify energy supplies and reduce it as quick as possible. I would also like to add something else. If we are talking uh, about things we wanted to do do before the 24th uh, of February uh, came uh, over Europe, uh, to put it like that, uh, they are contradicted in many ways. For example, if we are talking about how to heat households, how to run industry and economy, we never thought of putting on coal mines again and coal power uh, plants. So um, this is really contradictory to to the European Green Deal. But we see there is a necessity, and that's something we figured out now. We can't go back, but we have to look to the future now and do everything which is in our power to get less dependent, especially in Russia, but think also about other dependencies. And in this regard, I would like to mention again China. We have to look at China, and we have to see what we can do in this regard, because China is an economic partner, is a strategic partner, but it's also a rival. And we have to be honest about that.
0: How do you see things, Thomas? You come more from an economics background. Do you find that a lot of the discussions you're having are now being infused with, with geopolitics and politics, and that there's a new economic model which is emerging?
3: Well, In reality, we've been discussing these things for many years. And we should remember that globalization as we know it, which for many people meant more or less frictionless trade across the globe, uh, was built on standards and institutions, if I'm only exaggerating slightly, were built on North Atlantic values. And there was one hegemon in the world, uh, which maybe didn't always stick to these rules that it imposed on others, uh, but there we were. So the coming of a multipolar world is in itself already changing the rules of the game, and the 24th of February probably accelerated trends. It didn't create necessarily new trends. And uh, what, we, what we need to think of is what, what is it uh, if we continue to have one set of rules, one set of institutions, that would mean uh, that all countries involved in global trade have similar technical standards, have similar environmental standards, uh, have the institutions that ensure more or less frictionless trade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one monetary system... with which the reserve currency, the global reserve currency, is the dollar. And it is extremely unlikely uh, that over the next 10-20 years we will be moving into a world like that. Think simply uh, of climate issues. Uh, We will not be having, unfortunately, uh, identical climate standards uh, globally uh, within the next 10 years. What does that imply for trade? So, trade will have to take account, imports and exports will have to take account uh, of that, and we will have barriers necessarily. Uh, and that may also imply different technical standards. And one last thing uh, the dollar was always seen as the reserve asset uh, globally for a variety of reasons. It's been the reserve asset uh, of the world for the last hundred years, which is already over the more than the average of its four predecessors. But what is the freezing of uh, Russian central bank assets? What does that imply? Do non-democratic countries still believe that investing in the dollar, keeping their reserves in the dollar uh, is a sensible thing to do? So we may see a world financial system, which is for democratic countries based more on the dollar and for the non-democratic countries more on others, a possibility.
0: Is that what you think we're going to see? Carl, a Kind of bipolar world with a, a Chinese half, a China Russia half, and a and a yeah. U.S. dominated half.
1: Elements of that, but I think we are. Our dependencies are big. I mean, as I said, China is going to be the world's biggest economy. It's got to be the world's biggest market. If you look at the European economy, as European firms, they have to be present on the European mor- on the Chinese markets. No way around that both in order to be able to sell and in order to be able to see the competition in China before the competition appears in, in Europe. Uh, and we see for all of the talk there is about sort of deglobalization, we see investments in China increasing, we see trade with China increasing still, in spite of the fact that Chinese economy is slowing down and there are X numbers of political issues as well. Then we have a dependence. I mean, our dependence is changing. Um, I would hope that a couple of decades down the road, we are significantly less dependent on fossil fuels. Be that gas, or be that oil, from be that Russia, or be that Saudi Arabia, from the climate point of view, it doesn't make much of a difference. I hope that we'll be gone. But in order to manage the energy transition, we need the nickel, we need the lithium, we need the cobalt. And we don't find it in Austria or Sweden, to put it mildly. Uh, we find it in China, we find it in Chile, we find it all over the world. Europe is for its welfare enormously dependent upon functioning global markets uh, with trade agreements, with multilateral arrangements, the WTO and others, and that will continue to be the case. But within that framework, it will change. I, I, I think we underestimate how much the energy's transition going from sort of fossil fuel for, the, for a couple of hundred years to completely different dependencies. Uh, and China is unfortunately leading in most of these things. China is leading in the energy transition
0: on electric vehicles at the moment, and uh, that's going to have an impact. Carolina, you, before you became Europe minister, were a lawyer and a judge and have worked a lot, in. and it seems that a lot of the friction that's coming back into the world is going to be about standards, whether it's about privacy and data, which has become an increasingly important part of the economy. But also on this carbon transition, there's been lots of talk within the EU about carbon border adjustment mechanisms and finding ways of of stopping people from, or stopping what people call carbon leakage, the idea that we can simply export our pollution to other places. Um, How do you see the the world kind of emerging? Because I think there was definitely a dream for most of the last 30 years that the World Trade Organization would provide a model for what we do in other areas. That you'd have a single set of standards. You'd have a single agency that could ensure that people complied with those standards. But now there's more talk about about fragmentation, about friendshoring, and about different standards emerging in different places. And and in some ways, um, you know, what started with the with with the digital world and the idea of the splinter net could actually become um, The true for other areas. How how do you see that emerging?
2: First of all, I'm very happy that uh, I uh, am a lawyer and that I could really collect a lot of experience before becoming a politician because everything is full of law, everything is full of uh, things where you have to be very precise in putting words and uh, even more in in times of big challenges, in times where you have uh, to face big insecurities also. And um, what uh, What comes to my mind when you're talking about that topic, then I would say that we had the big luck to live in a world until the 24th of February, I would say, where we have the European Convention of Human Rights, where we have the treaties of the European Union, where we have a set of values put down in words, in laws, in proceedings, which we all agreed upon. And... uh, we should not stop, and this is really my message, to have the dream to export these values and and to stick to them, not only within the European Union, but also abroad. And um, this applies for many other things, not only for the trade sector, you mentioned it yourself, for the social media platforms, for example. There aren't not rules by now, which uh, have to be applied worldwide. Nevertheless, we have the Internet, and it does not know any borders. So we have to make a set of rules um, for people using these tools. And that's not easy, because these social media platforms, they have a big economic power in the meantime. We didn't look at them for a long time in in, in the regard of, of rules, and now they... Uh, Partly laughing at us and say, "Okay, you make you want to make the rules. We are making the rules. We have our own rules. You can obey our rules." And we have to turn that uh, um, in, in the other direction now, and that's not easy. So um, what I'm going to say is, we made the first steps. We made the first steps in Austria. We have a law in place since the 1st of uh, January 2021, where you have to delete hate in the Internet as a social media platform uh, being active in Austria. In the meantime, we also achieved a European solution, uh, the DSA and the DMA, but we need it worldwide and this is also in connection with uh, with your question of the globalization because if we want to 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 have a, a world where we can trust what happens next then we have uh, to to be of the same rules and and and, and, and uh, talk of this uh, about the same rules so this will be a lot of challenge uh, for the next 10 to 20 years i would say not only um, when it comes to hate the internet what is which is uh, one of my um, yeah topics which I'm really um, working and, and, and fighting hard for but also when it comes to betrayals when it comes to crypto uh, when it comes to uh, credit cards misuse and and this is all in connection with uh, trade and globalization
0: so um Thomas vissa you've done a, you've, you're officially a, one of the wise men who's been uh, advising Europeans how to think about their economic future um how do, you see, how do you think European governments should position themselves in this new world that we're talking about? There's been lots of talk about, about European sovereignty and strategic autonomy. Uh, but equally, you know, I think more than any other part of the world, we've relied on the multilateral system and on the, the idea of a rules-based order. How, how do you see Europeans navigating um, these different contradictions that, that they're faced with at the moment?
3: Yes, indeed, there was a strong reliance on the multilateral system, and uh, there was a certain sense like the window cleaner falling off the Empire State Building, and when he fell f- past the first floor, he said, so far, everything good. <laughs> um, and we we lived in a Goldilocks uh, environment. Uh, we've, in Western Europe, we've lived in the perfect world for the past uh, decades, and therefore it was not even, Hardwired into the brain of people, politicians, and others, uh, that things could change, but they are changing. And uh, if if we want to make an imprint, as you were saying, uh, at the global level, be it on uh, standards, uh, be on democracy, be it on climate, we have to remember that uh, the large players um, are usually players uh, that have military capabilities as well, which have a joint uh, and single foreign policy and willing to be nasty. Otherwise, send an email and say, uh, we want you to take over our standards. And the reply, well, I'm not quite sure if uh, they will hit the reply button. So if we want to uh, make, if we want to be autonomous, if we want to be sovereign, if we want to be strong, uh, we have to get our act together in the area of security policy uh, and foreign policy. Otherwise, we're cooked. And the second thing, I've been, I was working over the years uh, quite a lot on sort of policy and risk. And sort of the standard answer is, why don't we prepare for all the risks and uncertainties that there are around? Then you never get around to doing anything. Mm-hmm. So the issue is, I think, simply having a mindset and being politically prepared for the unexpected to happen. And what we've witnessed uh, over the last two or three years uh, is more that there was not a willingness and the capability to coordinate, neither nationally in very, very many state countries, let alone internationally. So what you need to do uh, is produce uh, processes, mindsets, procedures uh, that uh, make you Capable of dealing with the unknown unknowns and sometimes the known unknowns Mm -hmm. don't prepare for everything. It's a waste of money It's a waste of time Uh, The rocket will always come from somewhere else, but those are the two things which I think are of prime importance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. I've been saying that to uh, politicians over the last 15 years and I don't think uh, I never had the impression that anybody's listening to me
2: I was listening very carefully, I have to say, <laughs> and I, I would like to quote uh, what you said, the unknown unknown and the known unknown, because I am of the same opinion that we are always in fear of things we see, but we are not of fear in, of things we are not seeing, and this is what we should focus on and, and try to think visionary, where is the naked, next rocket coming from? Maybe, maybe we can guess it and, and then we are better prepared.
1: And I think what we have learned, at least I learned very much from the COVID experience, is the importance of the agility of our systems and the global value chains. Just just a couple of figures. What we, and I've been sort of working with the World Health Organization on these issues as well, what we managed to achieve, apart from the miracle of producing vaccines, gone from producing three, four billion doses a year, To in the order of 14 billion doses. And these are very complicated things to manufacture, extremely high quality standards. In the beginning, it went badly and slowly, partly because we had a lot of vaccine nationalism, a vaccine sort of component. We had more than 150 different restrictions in place. Gradually, the WTO worked that down to at the moment 30, 40 or something like that. That made it possible to expand production with things flowing freely across the world with sort of ingredients and components and agreements on technical hand and that made it possible had we not had the agility of the production system and had we not had the not ideally but fairly open global value chains towards the end of the pandemic we would still be struggling. We are still not where we should be, vaccinating 7% of the global population by September, uh, but we are nearly there, uh, and would not have been possible without these factors.
0: But, I mean, it was an incredible period that we've all survived the, the COVID period, and it was a period where after you know many, many years of us assuming that the state would play an ever smaller role in our lives, you had the return of political heroism, where the government was telling us whether we're allowed in and out of our houses. Yeah, but it was primarily
1: in. the agility and flexibility of the global economy. It was not states producing the vaccines.
0: So what do you think the the, the challenge for governments is, Carolina, in, in terms of being able to deal with, you know, getting through the winter now <laughs> with Russia, but also thinking about the next few crises?
2: I heard a very wise man saying only a two hours ago, that if we can pass the next five to nine months, we can also pass the next years and then we can concentrate on the long-term issues. Uh, So if I knew... What we have to do to pass these uh, five to nine months, I would be very happy. I think we have really to to strengthen our forces within the European Union to solve these issues together. Because especially regarding the upcoming autumn and winter, it is about energy. It is about the prices of energy. It is about the security of energy supply chains. And uh, we can't do it as a as a middle-sized country, as Austria, but not. Uh, but also France, as a big country, cannot do it uh, alone. And I really do hope that the European Commission will come along with a proposal now in, in the next days, um, how we can cap the prices also. So um, to put our forces together is uh, the most important thing, I would say. And um, the other thing is coming back to unknown-known and known-unknown. Um, I would like to uh, catch up uh, what Carl said now regarding the vaccines and, and the, the vaccination rate. It seems like we, were, we are talking about a topic which is decades ago and has been actual decades ago, because um, who is talking about testing now, who is talking about vaccines now? Nearly no one, and I'm, and I'm remembering back, especially December 2020, when the first vaccines uh, came on the market, there was no other, not, not, not another topic than this topic. So what do I want to say with that? This is about politics. You have a topic every single month, maybe every single week. Uh, And if you are in the middle of the hurricane, uh, it can happen that you are forgetting what you were talking about last week because the next topic is capturing so much. So in in challenging times, it's even moving faster. So uh, I think there is not a recipe uh, for everything, but we have to cross the bridges when we get there
0: so maybe we're coming towards the end of our time but maybe we can end with you thomas and um be very interested someone who's a survivor of previous crises particularly the euro crisis and then covid i mean how worried are you about the the european economy in the years ahead as we go through this storm that we've been describing and do you think that it, it's going to be worse than COVID and, and the Euro crisis? And what do you think some of the political implications of that might be? Small question.
3: <laughs> this is a two-hour podcast. <laughs> um, so, I mean, of course, we've been disproportionately hit uh, by uh, the war against in, in the Ukraine, uh, partially because of geographic proximity, partially because of energy dependency, uh, etc. And uh, maybe this, what is seen as a short-term problem, uh, may turn out to be a uh, long-term bonus uh, because it will accelerate uh, the necessity uh, for the ecological transition in Europe. Uh, Ideally, uh, it will not only produce a uh, better ecological situation, but also lead to more firms within Europe uh, in investing in that, uh, uh, developing uh, these products, etc. That's the positive view. What we need to avoid is uh, that there are uh, very different economic developments between the south and the north of Europe and the west and the east of Europe And that is where for the last 20 years we've been sort of banging our heads against the issue uh, of sovereignty, of policymaking, of member states on the one hand, uh, versus the required degree of policy solidarity and coordination if you are running an integrated internal market, let alone an integrated uh, euro area. So if we solve this conundrum or if we move towards Improving on this conundrum between interdependency and sovereignty Which has very much to do with the powers of national parliaments and how we see our constitutions If we move towards that I'm very optimistic uh, on uh, That that Europe can emerge from this crisis economically stronger and politically stronger, but there are quite a number of ifs around that but fortunately as they say, the fear of hanging sharpens man's mind.
0: <laughs> well, um, I think that's a, it's a very positive note on which to end that discussion <laughs> with the fear of hanging. Um, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, though, and that's our, our bookshelf uh, section. Um, Carolina, what do you recommend to our listeners and our audience here in Altbach?
2: Well, I would recommend, uh, as someone who was born in Salzburg and grew up in Salzburg, Stefan Zweig, The World of Yesterday. And unfortunately, we see that this is um, a very, yeah, very accurate topic. And if you are reading um, how people dealt with the situation uh, back in World War II, then you feel that it is that it could be now. And this is desperate on the one hand. On the other hand, it's very interesting.
0: Wonderful. What about
3: you, Thomas? The book I'm reading the two books I'm reading at present are not ones that I would remem, uh, recommend uh, the one is on Japanese conjugations <laughs> and the other one is uh, in a, a book by Ilya Prigojin on uh, in German the title is from werden zum sein it has to do with quantum mechanics and and and, and <laughs> thermodynamics so I wouldn't recommend that but there's a uh, by a uh, Eva Menasse a book called Dunkelblum. Uh, which I think is only available in German. It deserves translations into many languages and deals with a dark side of Austrian history.
0: Okay, what about you Carl? No, I've just uh,
1: finished reading both a new, um, or at least newly available in English, a very good history of the Adriatic region written by an Italian professor. There's another Adriatic history book out by sort of an English historian as well, so I'm starting on that and then I has completed a great book about the Nuremberg war crimes tribunal in order to learn both about war crimes tribunal for reasons that are fairly obvious and about the nature of how those sorts of regimes operate because you learn quite a lot by those months of war crimes tribunal in Nuremberg
0: okay so we'll put up links to all the podcasts that we uh, all the publications we mentioned <laughs> on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to download it. And while you're there, why not give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will drive other people to get to hear the the podcast. But for now, from Carl Bilt, from Carolina Edstadler, from... Thomas Visa and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedl. And also a big thanks to our live audience from Altbach. <laughs>